0: If
1: you follow me on Twitter, at P-E-S-C-A-M-I, why not follow the gist, at SlateGist? We will take it easy on the memes. It's Friday, May 29th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump did a speech before the cameras today, didn't mention that a major American city was on fire, didn't mention the words Minnesota or police or, of course, George Lloyd, Good. The only thing more appalling than Donald Trump not even addressing the anguish, chaos, and upheaval in Minnesota would have been if he did. But for that, we of course have Twitter, and as they say in Casablanca, we'll always have Fox and friends. Joe Biden did address the anguish, chaos, and upheaval resulting from the killing. Now, as per the official county prosecutor, the third degree murder of George Floyd.
2: Once again, we had the words heard the words, and they heard them, I can't breathe. An act of brutality so elemental, it did more than deny one more black man in America, his civil rights and his human rights. It denied him of his very humanity, it denied him of his life. Depriving George Floyd is, uh, as, as it deprived Eric Garner, one of the things every human being must be able to do. Breathe. So simple, so basic, so brutal.
1: It was a normal, non-insane person form of communication. I'd give it a B minus or A triple plus if we're grading on the newly established curve. I did notice who Joe Biden's audience was. Listen to this.
2: Imagine if every time your husband or son, wife or daughter left the house, you feared for their safety from bad actors and bad police. Imagine if you had to have that talk with your child about not asserting your rights taking the abuse handed out to them, so, so,
1: just so, they could make it home. Well, tens of millions of people don't have to imagine, and I suppose some people are going to point that out as a criticism, but I'm not making a criticism. I think what Joe Biden is doing is speaking from personal experience and trying to evoke empathy. It's what his old boss did when he spoke of the death of Trayvon Martin. Every person has his or her own perspective, and they can't change what that experience is, but they can draw on it to broaden out or sweep up others in an effort to expand understanding. That's what Biden was trying to do. The dark version of that is what Trump is trying to do in emphasizing the devastation in the wake of George Lloyd's death, rather than the devastation that was George Lloyd's death. On the show today, an assessment of leadership in Minneapolis, Minnesota, USA. Mayor, governor, president. Well, you know, the last one, he doesn't get high grades. But first, Dave Eggers returns. Well, a secret. He he doesn't really return. He... Did one interview, left, not sleeping in my guest room. But he was excellent, and the interview ran on at length just because I was curious. So I've decided to present it now in two parts. Dave Eggers, part two.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it
1: Yesterday we spoke to Dave Eggers about his new book, Parade, in which two contractors build a straight road in a war-torn country. Today, Eggers and I talked about another, well, if not war-torn country, certainly torn up in other ways. This one.
2: I think more the latter. I'm so conscious of making sure that one thing doesn't bleed into the other if they're drastically different stories that I actually have to really consciously make sure that I don't borrow from one or the other and sort of impugn the integrity of one because I'm sometimes vacillating between the two. And, you know, in this case, like, the parade I probably outlined 10 years ago after experiencing, you know, a few, seeing some things like I was talking about maybe 15 years ago. And then the captain and the glory sometimes, you know, something will uh, arrive like the election of a lunatic uh, to the nation you love and then you have to act a little quicker but so the the fact that they ended up getting finished around the same time maybe in the same year was just pure chance because one was cooking for so long the parade and was in my mind for 15 years and then the Captain of the Glory still was almost three years in the making because I put that aside for a while to just say like this I I don't know does the world need a allegorical satire about this time can we even stand it to be uh or have have to be reminded of it but then when I came back to it I sort of I still liked it I still thought there might be a place for it so I think they were both published within a same calendar year I can't remember at this point even though it was last year but um but I really had to consciously think, okay, let's make sure that these both have uh, their own integrity and and are true to themselves and not overlapping, because there really isn't any overlap, Um, and I think that that can sometimes be confusing to my publisher or the foreign publishers that think that they're, in Germany, they were both published at the same time, and I know that they're probably trying to make parallels there where there just isn't, and sometimes I was just talking to some young students uh, this morning, some fourth graders from Washington State, and I was trying to say, like, there really is so little rhyme or reason sometimes to, to the work of even a 50-year-old adult who has been doing it for a long time. It's a lot of chance and a lot of just random happenstance where, boy, why would it be that you publish these two books in the same year and there's really uh, there's nothing but the fact that... Um, they happen to get finished around the same time and i have a weird thing when i finish something i want to publish it as soon as i can and it's hard for me to wait that usual 13 to 16 months that sometimes it takes between a manuscript being done and it and it coming out so i tend to sort of say it's finished let's publish it
1: yeah I could though see they are different. They're but they're similar lengths. Totally different tones. Different kinds of books. I could see one serving this need of you just loving to create wacky character names, whereas the other has, I think, four character <laughs> yeah. names: c- c- yeah. Cousin Medallion, Four and Nine. I think are the ca- yeah. all the named characters. Am I wrong? Did, I, did yeah. I miss one?
2: No, I think you know. I mean, with the captain, there, there's. I think if anything, there there has been a lot of different moments when I've been working on something very heavy, and um, not not incredibly fun to write. And the parade wasn't like a joyous experience necessarily. And then I will sometimes, at the you know, maybe as a palate cleanser, work on something uh, radically different. And so, the captain, I finished it after I finished the parade, and it was a real nice departure because it is so silly. And all of the names are so silly. And to be just completely unhinged and not bound at all to physics or logic and to not have to do that much research about the functioning of a cruise ship, although I did do some, was really uh, refreshing. And I guess, if anything, in terms of them interacting like it was fun, really fun. And And it informed the unhingedness of this last third of the book, was that I really did... That's when I, I finished the last third of The Captain after I finished the parade. And and because it is so... Uh, it really goes off the rails. I think I was probably reacting to knowing... With The Parade, knowing the ending before I began the book, I think it's, I, I might have been enjoying the lack of constraints with, uh, with, with finishing uh, The Captain. And um, all I can say is that, you know, with that book... I think even though before, you know, last time we talked, when we were talking about that, we were not in the middle of a pandemic, but the book envisaged, envisaged or questioned, what would it be like if something really went wrong yes. when you elect a clown? And do you need somebody with any expertise in government to run a government, or do you need anybody who knows how to sail when you're stuck on a cruise ship? It's... Uh, it's really weird. I, you know, I, I think about it all the time in, in that I think that we, and in, in it's very different than I think the more mature European democracies in that Angela Merkel is not a super charismatic person, but the Germans know that they need a competent, cool-headed, intelligent, and temperamentally stable person and they don't need a, a show, and she's not going to run a, you know, not going to be, she's not going to put on an entertaining rally. But they, that's that's a different thing. They they have television for that. They can watch, you know, uh, sitcoms if they want to be entertained. But here we really do conflate the two, in a way that is existentially dangerous. Where if we just have got to get to a place where we know the difference between reality TV and government. And I don't know when we're going to figure it out. And maybe maybe this was a once-in-a-lifetime anomaly, but I don't think so, because I don't think that people generally know the difference. But it's, uh just makes you really think that we are uh, a lunatic, barbarian idiocracy that uh, is just beyond parody. And then, you know, and then the next day, you'll be reminded of all that's great about the country, too. But it is... Uh, it's a uh, whiplash that we lived through in these last three years that, I don't know, I think it's taking many years off of all of our lives. Um, even if we survive this, I think we're going to live shorter lives for all of the stress and uh, tragedy and uh, ludiocracy, is that a word, that we've had to live through?
1: Yeah. I mean, when you say idiocracy... I didn't think about this until now. The president in that Mike Judge movie has so many more redeeming qualities yeah. than the actual president. Cruz. Yeah. Yeah. And look, he could be in for he learns from his mistakes in idiocracy.
2: There's there's no difference between what we live through and idiocracy. That movie was prophetic masterpiece. And you know, ultimately he's I mean, if you saw how that the White House around Terry Cruz is depicted as just this like uh haven for grifters and morons and um and and criminals
0: that hang around
2: and, and desecrate this uh historical building and then ultimately they have you know monster truck rallies basically in lieu of uh congressional hearings. It's it, there's absolutely no difference. Mike Judge is a genius. I think uh he saw it coming, he saw all the ingredients and and uh and it was just a matter of them coalescing around the right or or, or the wrong, once in a generation fool.
1: Ugh. So what are you working on now?
2: Well, I um, I'm working on something that, you know, usually I'm pretty open about, blabbing about what I'm working on, but I am working on something that I have to keep under my hat for the time being. You know, meanwhile, I've been trying to, you know, I wrote this piece in the in the times, sort of in a Q and A form in the in the op-ed section, about the contradictions of the time and how they turn our brains into pretzels, and how we live. You know, we're living through a, a moment where you need high, incredible organization, chain of command, a plan, and how we, uh, you know, as a as a nation, it's been clearly expressed that that there is no plan, and that that is the plan. And I think once we Realize that, that we're on our own and that we've, you know, have this megalomaniac narcissist who's only about himself expressing and carrying, you know, uh, giving that philosophy as a a guiding principle to to the rest of us. I wrote that in this Q&A format and I've done it, I've done a few more since and one that will go up on the McSweeney's website about uh, guns in Michigan. And, you know, some writing is uh, is is more methodical and um, and precise, and it's sort of like building a house plank by plank. And and then there's some that's just uh, a joy, even if you're dealing with very serious subjects. And this sort of this call and response dialogue model has been really fun, uh, even when it's exp- talking about uh, very grim issues. And so this next one about you know our gun laws and how we actually live in a place where you can bring an AR-15 into the Michigan State House and that that is legal, even though it is the definition of terrorism, is to bring an armed, you know, a loaded machine gun into yeah. the house of law.
1: Well, only only insofar as the state senators have tweeted that they feel terrorized and are wearing their bulletproof vests and have never been so happy for the sergeant at arms only by the literal definition of terrorism. You know, most terrorism doesn't work here is the because, you know, the terrorized people are supposed to be roused to say we will not be cowed by the terrorists. Here are the people who are supposed to be terrorized, (laughs) not even realizing what they're doing or saying, oh, my God, this is terrifying.
2: Yeah, I mean, and this barely makes news. You know the the interesting thing, in case anyone doesn't get to this piece, is that I've been you know following the NRA for twenty odd years, and it's really interesting just to to note, and I think everyone should walk around with this information, is that the NRA, at most, their membership is three million, but I doubt that it's that high. The dues are forty five dollars a year, and only a fraction of those on the roster of two three million pay them, and so. You have an organization that may- might be as few as a million active members. And that's, you know, uh, less far less than 1% of the population. And they make, create the laws that keep the rest of us living in a perpetual terror dome. And, um, and somehow we cow and the politicians cow to their insurmountable power thinking that they're just that they're a force that we have to live with and that they will always push things to the radical edge when, in fact, this is a tiny organization that's poorly run, that's near bankrupt, that has to get... There's this power struggle going on between Wayne LaPierre and Oliver North and whoever else, and um, they're laying people off left and right and might have to sell their building. All of these things, and somehow we still think of... We're, we are awed by their power, and it's uh, and it is a fundamentally upside-down situation where we could so easily overcome their so-called power and bring gun laws back to sanity. But it's so rare, I think, when we kind of finally, when we can see what the actual ratio is of and see what power we really, really do have over an organization like this, which is a really an anemic, um, ludicrous, poorly run near bankrupt um, organization that bears no resemblance to what they were started but in the in the 80s and 90s it took a really hard turn and um, and was just hijacked you know if they could be replaced by a more rational organization that was about making sure that you know that there's gun safety and that you can buy a rifle to hunt and whatever then i think that we would save tens of thousands of lives a year but if we're under we live under uh you know the the rule and this this dark shadow of people that really are it's a it's in a way it's a it's a very um a grim death cult sort of aura to it, which really has nothing to do with the average, like your dad or your grandfather and his rifle that he kept to hunt varmints and to keep the family safe at home. You know, it's really very different now.
1: Yeah, anytime uh, Ollie North is the actual literal voice of reform, uh, That's that's a great organization.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh my God.
1: Dave Eggers is the author of of The Parade. He is the founder of McSweeney's and 826 Valencia. Dave, thanks so much for coming on.
2: Great to talk to you, Mike.
1: And now the spiel. If Donald Trump weren't being inflammatory and defamatory, he'd be a hypocrite. Of course, the president relishes an opportunity to weigh in, and make worse, a horrific situation in Minneapolis. That Twitter lightly chastised him for threatening violence, and then he gets to play the martyr over a story that has an almost literal martyr, that is exactly his intention the whole time. Trump can't control a virus, and he can't control the anguish of tens of thousands of Minnesotans in the streets, or tens of millions of black Americans, or hundreds, or at least close to hundreds of millions of all Americans when they see video of the police killing George Floyd. But a virus scrambles our normal tribalism to a degree. Yes, the Michigan militia acted like goons, and took their guns to town in a fit of pique over a microscopic enemy. But if you look at polling on the attitudes of the old, the white, the swing state resident, they're against opening up too quickly. They're in favor of scientists. They're not in favor of buffoons. But with civil unrest, that to a guy like Trump is a familiar playbook. And Trump, of course, understands no other kind. When the looting starts, the shooting starts. More like when we need a leader, He resorts to theater. Most of the villains in the George Floyd case are actually systems. Yes, there are people like an officer named Darren Chauvin, who was charged with third degree murder. He had numerous complaints against him, was involved in other shootings, and was represented by a police union which aggressively fought efforts to curtail officer-involved shootings and brutality, which do more to tear apart communities than tough crackdowns on criminals do to hold them together. Chauvin seemed like a bad cop, but the system was what kept the police department from being reformed. At first glance, the current Minneapolis mayor, Jacob Fry, seems to be a voice of reform, but maybe not much more than a voice. He's a young mayor. He came from a glitzy law firm, and he may not have the backing or the tactics to uproot and take on an institution like the police force. New York City has actually made great strides in reigning in the police, but that's taken a toll on the mayor, Bill de Blasio. He has terrible relations with the cops. The NYPD does have almost 40,000 uniformed officers. There has been no shooting of an unarmed person by an on-duty cop in four years. Some might fact-check me and point out that an off-duty cop did shoot an unarmed man. Yes, that is true, and technically... Some of the databases that track such things will tell you that in 2017, an 18-year-old was shot by cops and he was unarmed. Well, that's only because he had a pellet gun that looked exactly like a real gun and he had used that pellet gun to rob a bodega. And then he pointed that pellet gun at police and he drew fire. The point is that reform is possible. It's hard work. People don't really notice it and also that the 800-member Minneapolis PD has killed more unarmed people in the last couple years than the 40,000-strong NYPD. The mayor of Minneapolis, Jacob Fry, held an early morning press conference today where, disheveled and unshaven, he justified allowing a precinct to be taken over by looters and arsonists who, of course, burned it down. Brick and mortar is not as important as life. He thought that line was so compelling That he opened the press conference with it and said it again as he finished. The building is just bricks and mortar. It's a building. Now contrast that, that abdication of responsibility and denigration of safety, with Minnesota Governor Tim Walz, who in a forceful press conference today laid out his thinking.
3: I understand clearly there is no trust in many of our communities. And the differentiation between the Minneapolis Police Department that we witnessed losing trust of those that are there to serve is very difficult for people to make for those standing up here with me. I understand that and I will not patronize you as a white man without living those those lived experiences of how very difficult that is. But I'm asking you to help us. Help us use humane way to get the streets to a place where we can restore the justice so that those that are expressing rage and anger and demanding justice Are heard. The
1: governor framed his actions, deploying the National Guard, restoring some order to the streets of Minnesota, not in defiance of the death of George Floyd, but in furtherance of the quest for justice for him. He spoke of a local library that burned, local businesses that burned, and talked about his discussion with a local official who begged the governor to help intervene to protect her constituents.
3: But last night I got a call from a friend and a dedicated public servant Senator Torres Ray called in her district and it was on fire. And there weren't any police there, there weren't any firefighters. There was no social control and her constituents were locked in their house wondering what they were going to do. That is an abject failure that cannot happen. We must restore that order to that. Senator Torres Ray has fought her whole life on these issues of inequities and making sure that people's voices are lifted up. But what she understands is none of us can lift those voices. None of us can tackle these problems if anarchy reigns on the street.
1: That is the correct message, the correct framing, the correct action. In times of crisis, we need leaders with empathy. That is true. And Donald Trump doesn't have any. But if an elected official only emotes, he or she isn't actually serving the people. One needs to balance the right message a message that hears and reflects back the pain of the rightly anguished, but also needs to provide the structure and competence that reassures the rightly fearful. Tonight is another night in Minnesota. There's only so much that the forces of the government can do in the face of mass rage. Let us hope the right leaders are doing all they can to make clear that the opposite of injustice isn't chaos. that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Margaret Kelly and Daniel Schrader, or as I affectionately have taken to calling them, 21 and 409, after my favorite constitutional amendment and blue jeans. The Gist, not yet violating Twitter's ridiculously flimsy standards, which is the equivalent of being allowed to wear a members-only jacket. Yes, I'm in! oomperoo depperoo Peru, and thanks
2: for listening.